This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. My guest for this hour is Ashley K. Shelton, the founder, president, and CEO of the Power Coalition. I love that name, uh, which is a statewide 501c3 table in Louisiana. Uh, the coalition uses a broad-based strategy that combines community organizing, issue advocacy, and civic engagement, all while increasing the capacity of community organizations throughout the state to sustain and hold the work. She's been with us before. She kind of broke our brains a little bit the last time she was here. Uh, Ashley K. Shelton, it is such a pleasure to have you back. Thank you for joining us again today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I am I am so joyful today. So so hopeful. Why? Why are you so joyful and hopeful, ma'am? What whatever could it be? Yeah, well, you know, Louisiana was, you know, we we knew we had to stand in solidarity with our friends in Alabama. Um, the Alabama case was first up on the agenda for the Supreme Court um, on Tuesday. And, you know, we brought with us um, over 100 students from HBCUs across the state of Louisiana wow. to really just stand, right? Like, and to say that we're not going to sit back and allow um, allow more than 50 years of democracy to be rolled back. Right. And what was so powerful was just also, so this was, you know, Justice Jackson's first, um, you know, kind of her, you know, her first official appearance after her investiture. And, you know, to have her like give such a powerful history lesson, right? Like that this mm. was not post-racial, like, yes. let's be really clear about the existence of black people in this country from whether you're talking about 1887 or whether you're talking about today. And so mm. it was really, um, really amazing to kind of, to, to just, you know, kind of see her do her magic and do what we knew her voice would do on the Supreme Court. Yeah. And then I think what also was powerful was to see how, how, you know, like, you know, racism really doesn't have a case, right? Like, and mm. so when they bring these cases and they make their way to the Supreme Court, I mean, it was really sad. I mean, like at some point, it's, you know, Supreme Court Justice Alito was trying to help out the, the you know, the the, the Alabama, <laughs> you know, state side about why it was okay for them to be racist. And I mean, and, and not that he was helping them out to, to make that argument, but he was trying to help them out in the, in the sense that like, you can't say that. You can't, you cannot actually don't let the cat out the bag. You can't say that. That's illegal. Don't say that. (laughs) So it was just a powerful day. And I think that, you know, what I walked away from that, you know, yesterday feeling hopeful because even though, you know, like there was nothing that was said in these, um, these oral arguments that leads me to believe that this, you know, section two of the voting rights is, um, can, you know, will be gutted. Right. Or, you know, you right. know, worst case narrowed, but it but there was nothing powerful about the defense that they put up against the claims of um, Evan Milligan and so many other plaintiffs in Alabama. And so just just powerful, powerful mm. day. Talk to us about the students' reaction, because the idea of bringing together high school students to to listen to oral arguments at the court, some people would say, those high school students don't care. There was actually a a commenter uh, who was criticizing a a civil rights museum. Uh, Joe Madison on these airways had to take them to task. But, you know, they say, well, they, they, they don't know anything about this stuff. Why would they care about this stuff? What was the reaction of the high school students as they were able to see Judge Jackson and to listen to all of this? Well, so, you know, so actually they were college students and oh, college. It, okay. it was, 
Yes, it was it was powerful. And they so actually, you know, because the court only has 200 seats available and lawyers get, you know, first dibs and all the all the things. Right. Yeah. So many of the advocates and, you know, organizers of, you know, that worked in Alabama, um, you know, went into the court. But there was also a rally. And so we mm. had uh, the majority of the students at the rally, even though some were uh, some did make it into the courtroom. Nice. The, the power of it was that, no, they get it. And, and there is no movement in this country that has happened without, without the voice and the power mm. of student voices, not right. one. And so That's if right. you look back to the, the, you know, the civil rights movement, you, you look at any movement and young people have been key and central um, and powerful, you know, advocates in, in these moments. And I think that it was, it, I think that it is reconnecting people to their agency as both mm. voters and, and to their voice and that it actually does matter. It's not going into the abyss. Um, you know, the folk, you know, like, like these kids understand that their existence is political. They understand that. Wow. And so, um, you know, and so for me, it was just about like folks that understand the fight and that are coming behind us to make sure that one, this happens in this moment, but that two, um, that there are so many powerful voices that are going to emerge from having had these experiences and understanding um, the power of what it meant to be in the nation's capital in that moment, mm. uh, having their voices heard. Mm, I love it. Uh, let's go back to Louisiana now. Let, let's talk about Louisiana. One, uh, I don't know. I don't believe you all had any of the negative impacts from the hurricane. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Uh, not President Trump's or former President Trump's Sharpie map, uh, but the actual map. But I'm presuming uh, that you all are, are well and safe. I know we got some of the lingering effects up here. Uh, so one, how are you all faring in Louisiana? Uh, that's my first question. And then I want to talk about redistricting in Louisiana because uh, you all are also in a bit of a, a crosshairs right now when it comes to redistricting. So uh, first, how are things just generally with, with you and the, the organizers who are part of the table? And then let's talk about what's happening with redistricting in Louisiana as well. Sure. So no, so we, we actually were not in the, um, the path of this, the storm and um, I'm very grateful, um, you know, that we were spared, um, but also never want this. I, we don't want any storm to hit anywhere because right. I think that what we learn every time is that, you know, like government is broken and it's not prepared to make people whole on the other sides of this. And, you know, and I am proud to say that, you know, that I, you know, that I am a part of some national, you know, efforts, organizing resilience and others to actually try to change and make adjustments both to the Stafford Act, but also to, to which also the Stafford Act drives the, the all of the um, disaster recovery. And so mm -hmm. we it's rigid. We need to fix some of those things. And then we also need to fix some of the, you know, disaster CDBG dollars and how those actually flow to community and yes. not into disaster capitalism. And so just know that it's, you know, it is, you know, it's painful to watch, but there are those of us um, that do this all the time that are fighting like hell to shift this from like, let's stop moving and paying for bureaucratic government and mm -hmm. let's start putting some money into just a disaster tax credit, a disaster relief tax credit, like pay people. Yeah. Let's trust people yeah. to um, to pay their bills, to rebuild their houses instead of all this large infrastructure that does absolutely nothing but make other people rich and um, and leaves, uh, you know, just a trail of, of you know, torn and, and destroyed homes. You know, I know it sounds it sounds simple to say pay people, but I was actually at a civil rights conference last week and one of the members, uh, one of the audience members was talking uh, to one of the elected officials uh, about this very issue when it comes to disaster. And she was like, why don't y'all just give everybody a credit card? You know where we all live. Give us a credit card when 
when a disaster hits, put the money on a prepaid car. Like put the money on a car so I can leave, so I can buy that gas, so I can leave town ahead of time. There are so many simple ways of approaching disaster recovery. Um, so, so yeah, paying people sounds simplistic, but if I'm waiting for my check before I can leave and the check comes after the hurricane comes, if you'd have just given me the money ahead of time, government, I could do that. I could take care of myself. Uh, so, so I'm so it's good to know that people are fighting for these things and advocating common sense issues. And, and this is also disaster recovery and, and all of the recovery from the traumas that our experience face is also a function of redistricting and how yep. you get access to those resources. Talk about uh, what's happening in the state of Louisiana with the state of redistricting and what the implications are there. So, you know, in Louisiana, we were hours away from having a, you know, a second majority minority seat. And so mm-hmm. the middle district, Judge Shelley Dick was, you know, we were set to go to court, you know, the, the you know, early the next morning. And, you know, Justice Alito, he stayed our case until the Alabama case was decided. And so what that meant was, was that we had to make sure to support and have voice within the Alabama case because, if Louisiana, you know, like, because if they would were to use the Alabama case to then gut it, and then then the the Louisiana case, the North Carolina case, it has you know it has implications for Black people all over the country. That's period. Right. right? That's right. And, um, you know, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee out of Texas, you know, beautiful speech on the steps about you know how you know her dish, you know, like for for a minute during redistricting, she didn't even have a, have a district. Okay, mm. like they have they written her out of her district. Mm. And um, and also, too, about the power of Section 5 and the necessity not only for Section 2, but for Section 5. And so the Louisiana case, um, you know, has been stayed. And so our case, but they weren't combined. And so what that means is that, you know, we still have a chance for, you know, now, we, our case will be heard on its own merits. Good. And so we now that the Alabama case has been heard, there will be, you know, the, their decision will probably drop in the you know late spring of 2023. Um, and again, you know, I, you know, given the, 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 you know, the, the oral arguments, I don't feel like there's anything that, again, that could be devastating to vote, you know, to what's left of the Voting Rights Act. Right. Um, you know, so we are just hopeful unless that they just once- decide to go whole white supremacists and just yeah, say, forget yeah, it. No, we just, we've got the numbers. Right. We've just decided. <laughs> Right. They ignore all legal precedents. I mean, and again, right. like clearly we're in a moment where that's happening. But I do, you know, I do feel like one of the one of the many things that's amazing about, um, you know, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Katanji Brown Jackson is that she is a consensus builder. And so I'm so mm. hopeful that she will be able to work with her, you know, with her colleagues to be able to hold the line on why you know black people still need protection under the law to make sure that they can that they don't become second class citizens and so the louisiana case um you know it will be coming up next and so um we're not sure in terms of the timeline like what it means specifically for louisiana but the fact that you know what law still stands following their um their opinion in the spring of 2023 um, you know, again, I keep walking in, you know, in my faith and my reality that nobody, nobody thought Louisiana or Alabama or North Carolina would get here. And we are all here right. with a beautiful, powerful record that was built by the people of our states mm. that were, that were built by community and organizers. And, you know, and we are here in this moment and we are fighting. And so I, you know, so it is my hope that the next time I talk to you, I'm talking about um, what's the steps for um, implementing our second majority minority district. And we are already doing work in that dish that which is Congressional District 5, depending on how you want to draw the maps. But 
and most of the the models, right? Like we know that con Congressional District 5 is the, the most poised to be the second majority minority district. Mm -hmm. And so even as we are in midterms right now, we are tilling the soil, we are working in community, we are, you know, building relationships so that we are ready to actually ensure that once this district is established in Louisiana, that we can actually elect a candidate of choice. And so, you know, again, I'm hopeful. I am, you know, there's lots of work to be done, but um, in terms of the Louisiana case, it, it, you know, Alabama sets us up to actually be, you know, have an opportunity to be fairly heard. Mm. You've mentioned a few phrases that I want to make sure the audience is clear about, because my goal, if, if I do my job right on these airwaves, this will be the last redistricting cycle where our audience is kind of fuzzy on it, right? This will be the last conversation, it'll be the last redistricting cycle where Black people who listen to Urban View are kind of like, I'm not redistricting, I'm tuning out. When you say majority minority district, what is, what is a majority minority district? And why is that so important for voters in your state? Yes. So, you know, majority minority district is a, is a district that at a minimum has 51 percent or more African-Americans, you know, African-American voting age population. So that, you know, again, those African-Americans in that district can elect a candidate of choice. And let me tell you why it's powerful and why it matters. If you look at the current delegation in Louisiana, we have one majority minority seat that is led by Congressman Troy Carter. Hmm. So when you look at every vote that matters to black people, um, he was the only one that voted for the infrastructure bill. So we're the second poorest wow. state in the country. And I don't know if you've ever driven on the street in New Orleans. We need more infrastructure than anybody. Mm. <laughs> so yes, like that. I, it's, it's absurd that, you know, our delegation would not support that. Um, you know, it, it matters because when you go back and look at all the votes, right, over the last year, our delegation voted against everything that was in the interest of Black people, mm. actually in the interest of many, many of their own constituents, Black and white people. But right. the, the reality is, is that, you know, having another Black voice, uh, you know, or a candidate of choice that doesn't even have to be Black, right? Like, but a That's candidate right. of choosing that will do the work of uh, and and fulfill the need and vote in the ways that it matters to 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 black and brown communities is powerful and so even in our organizing work all of the people that have you know thousands of people have participated in this process um you know it is wonky but one thing that black folks clearly understood was that one um that that they they were already setting this up to not be a fair and equitable process and they knew they deserved a second majority minority mm. seat and so and and they knew that even if they didn't live in that new district it still matters that when you look at the six votes that come out of Louisiana, that two of them will care about the issues that are important to black and brown communities throughout the state of Louisiana. And so that's why majority minority matters. You know, people want to make, you know, they keep talking about continuity of leadership um, or a couple of terms that they like to use, um, you know, a district, a 51 or 52 percent district not performing. Right. The, Yes, guess what? A 30% district absolutely won't perform for Black voters. That's right. You give me 52% and I will take it all day, every day and do the work of engaging Black voters to understand what it means for them to elect a candidate of choice and somebody that's going to do their work. Mm. And this new district, you know, like I said, there are many ways it can be reconfigured, but if the new district... You know, think about this. Congressional District 5 includes the Delta, which is, wow. you know, predominantly African-American and, and still one of the poorest places in our country, in our mm -hmm. nation. Mm -hmm. um, and then it comes all the way down to North Baton Rouge, which is, 
you know, also, you know, Baton Rouge is a tale of two cities. We've got both the best and the worst, you know, out life, you know, kind of life indicators in, in one community that's, you know, not even big enough to have two specifically different sets of outcomes for, for different folks. But North Baton Rouge, of course, is African-American. And so being able to prioritize within a district to, you know, two large communities of black folks that haven't that have been afterthoughts in the districts that they currently fall in. And so mm. this is so that's why it matters. That's why it's so, you know, powerful because this is about who gets money. This is about who gets prioritized. That's right. This is about who um, you know, like who is being centered in the decision making. This also too, here's the other thing. We've seen so many votes come down to two two votes, three votes. That's right. And so when you have another majority minority seat, that's one more vote, you know, you know, it's, you know, and, and, and react, you know, like in, in, in hope, right. <laughs> um, right and, and just right. that will be supporting legislation that matters to black folks. The one other thing I'll tell, you know, folks that this is another thing that's super important, you know, redistricting um, the, the John Lewis, you know, voting rights legislation that he, you know, put forth before, he died um, is so powerful and necessary. And so one of the things is no matter what the Supreme Court does, right? That's right. Um, the only answer to it is Congress. And so we may not be able to get exactly where we want to get with this current body um, that, that gets elected in this, these midterms in November. But to me, the my goal is to work with everybody in this country to say, like, hey, guys, whoever the next body is in 2024, if you are not willing to codify the John Lewis voting rights legislation into law, mm. like, that's my only question for you, right? Like, this is about codifying things into law so that I'm not right. fighting this for the rest of my life, right? right. Like, so that you know, that all the people that fought and died in the civil rights movement, you know, we're here, you know, 56, seven years later, having the exact same conversation, right. um, you know, with a pretend narrative that we're post-racial. And it's like, no, we're more po racially polarized than we've ever been. And also the hopelessness in our communities has grown um, and, and been felt more deeply than it ever has been given the, the impacts of COVID and so many other things. Mm. And you know, and, and the the disparate, you know, like the the ridiculousness to me of how we're going to talk about the high crime, but we will never address the fact that like black folks lost the most in COVID, right. the most jobs, black right. women specifically, um, you know, also all the ARPA money that came down from the federal government to make people whole just went to fill holes in city and state budgets. It never yep. went to the people. That's right. And even, even as we are fighting, because that second tranche is coming down or has come down and we're fighting at the local and the state level to try to push as much of that to community as possible. You know, the realities are is that there's a narrative that we have high crime, but not a narrative that we have totally forsaken the people of this country mm. um, because it's not just black folks, it's white folks too. And we we have to do the work of reprioritizing and understanding that it's okay to give people money. We did it with PPP. Come we on. did it with the child tax credit. Come on. And we have to stop pretending that business are the only business is a person or the only people that matter, right? Like right. people actually matter. And, uh, and, you know, and I was just like, and so, and, and when we're hurting, like we're going to do what's right for our families. Like, I don't think people are, and again, it doesn't even matter what people do with the money. Like stop. We have to stop legislating how people move, live, think, um, and the decisions they make, they will bear the fruit of those decisions, regardless of what they are. Right. And so, um, and so for me, that's, that's the, you know, like that's, there's so much on the line and mm. it, there's both power on the line, which is the name of the Alabama campaign. And I think it's so perfect because that when you think about redistricting, that's all you have to think about. Power, power. is on the line. Power is in the lines mm. and you better make sure 
a district where the lines allow you to elect candidates of choice at every level of government because the closer the office is to where you live, what, so your mayor, your city council members, your school board members, they're more directly impacting your life more than, you know, I mean, it used to not be that the federal government would be um, so painfully impacting our lives, but, um, but you know, the further you get away from where your zip code is in terms of elected officials, you know, like the, the less that, you know, like the less some of those things impact you. And so you got to care both at the local level and, you know, and at the, you know, state and federal levels of government, because these lines will determine whether or not you have voice and power or not. And there, there were lines that were stuck with until the next cycle. So this is a 10-year effort at least. You know, we had a situation in New York City with uh, our districting commission, and, and one of the lines of argument in one of the maps that they had put out suggested that uh, Staten Island should have three wholly contained districts. Now, if you know New York City, you know that one, Staten Island doesn't have the population to sustain three districts on its own. Staten Island is also one of the widest portions of New York City. They have some of the most exclusionary policies, which make it very difficult for non-white people to get established there. And so, you know, the, the concern we had as advocates was, wait a minute, you're going to have one of the least populated portions of the city get an extra district, three districts with, just for themselves, but, which basically rewards them for being exclusionary, rewards them for not having housing policies that are accommodating to people from different communities. And, you know, the advocates had to push back against that. And thankfully, it, you know, I'm keeping hope alive and the maps ain't adopted yet. They haven't been sent over to the city council as yet. But when you say the power is in the lines, that really matters because that extra seat for this community that doesn't deserve it based on population nor uh, uh, their participatory engagement with the rest of these who are the least of these really does help to either entrench further racial stratification of power or help to determine with equitably drawn lines whether or not we all get equitable access. One of the things that you mentioned was that the advocates built a record. You said we have this beautiful record that the, and, and for those of you following along, the record, the legal record is all the Supreme Court can really look to. They're not going to bring in a whole bunch of witnesses. They're not going to have Mr. Milligan uh, come in and talk about, you know, his experience as an organizer. All they're looking at is the legal record, the court record that is in front of them. Talk with us about what it means for people on the ground in Louisiana to play a role in helping to shape what these cases actually look like, particularly through the vein of how you all are approaching it with the Power Coalition. Yes. No, I, I mean, I think that it's, you know, I think it's the magic, right? Like, that's what's so powerful about is, is that like, you know, I think a couple of things. One is that nobody wanted to tell the organizing story that was redistricting in Louisiana or many states where there was lots of community action and voice. Um, but that's okay. You don't, because guess what? The record, the legal record tells the story because we had mm. unprecedented historic participation in redistricting in the state of Louisiana. Wow. Also, no story about that, but, you know, um, yeah. and also, too, like, we got to the Supreme Court by magic, allegedly, uh, and, and it's like, no, like, we got to the Supreme Court because we people fought, people stood because they understood power was on the line. Mm. And so what it means for us is that this record that goes, that starts from the listening sessions that the, that the Louisiana State Legislature held, where we were able to train thousands of citizens to participate and have their voices heard in that process, all the way through the redistricting session, where we, we started the first two days with over 250 you know, citizens from across the state who testified. Wow. You know, one young woman, Marissa, um, who's now the student, um, you know, the student president at Dillard University, gave one of the most powerful speeches where she said, and this is on the record in our case, she said, I have no hope for the state of mm. Louisiana. 
I have no hope that the that this body will do the right thing by the people of Louisiana, which is why young people like myself and my friends are leaving. We will get our education and we will leave this state. Wow. And, you know, and for that, not to ch- send chills down their spine, I mean, which it did a few, it did affect a few, you know, but that's the reality that we're mm. looking at as a state. And you, we start talking about numbers and, you know, and so I think for Louisiana, this was, this is, the record is, is powerful and it is strong. And um, at a minimum, at a minimum throughout this process, we've had so many powerful leaders um, at the community level, grassroots leaders um, testify and have their heart, their stories, their, mm. you know, their lifetime of works in some cases around making sure that, you know, that black folks actually had voice, um, you know, through these processes. And then I think, you know, to one of the other pieces that you said, you know, uh, especially about Staten Island, like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's emblematic of what's happening across the country. That's so right. we have lost. So in most places and not all we have, there has been a decline in white population. Right. Um, in most places, there has been an increase in black and brown <laughs> population. Yep. And in almost every case, or no, let me, in most cases, we have lost black and brown power. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the math is not mapping. And so, we, so the math that, ain't like, mapping and the maps ain't mapping. <laughs> it ain't none exactly, of it's working. Exactly. Come on. Okay. <laughs> like, no, exactly. And so I think that for, you know, for Louisiana, as we go into, you know, our, you know, like as we wait for, you know, our case to be heard, we stand strong. Right. And, mm. and, you know, and very similarly to, you know, to, um, you know, to, to Alabama, there is, you know, like our, our record is solid, our legal record of what was said, what, what is felt by the majority of people in this state is on the record. And, mm. um, and through, you know, the court cases that led us to the Supreme court, you know, there is no argument except, you know, there were no experts that actually did the work of trying to understand why they could legitimately say they did this other than their right. lawyer said it's okay. And so for Louisiana, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to the day that as a plaintiff in our case that I get to, you know, I get to both, you know, you know, uh, stand and, 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 and sit before, you know, the Supreme Court and, you know, and hear, you know, Supreme Court Justice uh, Jackson say again that these cases are connected. And what, as we know, is this deep South too. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, as goes the South, goes the rest of the country, but yep. specifically Louisiana, Mississippi and Alabama, and sometimes Arkansas, um, and sometimes Texas, it just depends. But, just depends. <laughs> but the deep South is Louisiana, Mississippi and, Ar- and Alabama. And what we know is, is that, think about it, every terrible policy that has ever happened in this country is always seated in the deep South and then brought wholesale yes, to the rest of the country. That's right. And so everybody was laughing at us when right to work passed in Louisiana and they're like these backwards folks with their, their P-Rows and alligators in their backyard or whatever, whatever, the you know, whatever people want to say. Right. Mm-hmm. And months later, it was in Michigan passing. Right. Like, I mean, like in a year's time, it was in Michigan. And so it's like, you can't, underestimate the power of, you know, like how people use these very conservative states to, you know, breed, you know, seed and breed terrible policy that ends up Mm. becoming national policy, um, as we've seen through ALEC and so many other, um, you know, branches of, of, of those kind of political entities that are moving this agenda to continue to, you know, to neutralize and and neuter the voices of, of black and brown people across the country. 
you are doing God's work and the ancestors work. And I am, I'm so glad that you made those connections because sometimes we, we get stuck in these silos and, and we think about things in terms of, well, that's a Louisiana issue. That's a, that's an Alabama issue. These are mm-hmm. not, if it impacts black people anywhere in this nation, it's a black people issue, right? And because what happens with Alabama and it's going to impact black people in Staten Island, it's going to happen. It's going to impact black people everywhere. And I am really in this mode right now where it's all of us, or it's none of us. <laughs> like either we all win or can't nobody win. So when some of us decide to put on White Lives Matter t-shirts, you can't sit with us no more, Ashley. Um, I'm, that's Absolutely a whole other conversation. Not. Absolutely not. <laughs> and, and to your point, I mean, I think that that's what's so powerful about this moment, and 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 that we've you know we've been driving this point home both with our national partners as well as you know other state partners saying that like look, I mean, this Alabama case has implications for every black person in this country. That's period. Right. Like there's no. You know, like this isn't just about Alabama. This is about whether or not we have to go back and 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 fight a fight that we already won more mm. than 50 years ago. This is about whether we walk and live in this country as second class citizens. And even though we structurally live like that in many ways, my right, you know, like to to truly then, you know, kind of neuter our vote and our voice and our agency as voters you know, it, it codifies that in a way that makes it impossible to even address the structural right. pieces. And so, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's all of us and none of us. And I that's think that it. that's also one other important point that I've been trying to make to other communities, which is, you know, you can't say you care about reproductive rights if you don't care about voting rights. That's right. You can't say you care about LGBTQ rights and not care about voting rights. You can't say you care about criminal justice and not care about voting rights. And so, so I just tell folks like we got to fight together. That's all right. of these, all of these are bedrock foundational issues and it all starts with voting rights. We have about 15 seconds left before we have to shift gears. Uh, I love having you here. I, I want to make a seat for the power coalition. I just, we just need voices from the South like yours so much more. Uh, and, and I'm going to do my job to amplify as much as I can. How can people follow you and stay connected with the work that you all are doing there? Yes. Look, check us out on our website, powercoalition.org. There's so many resources. We've got ballots. We've got, you know, a public service commission on the on the ballot this year, two seats. Mm. You know, so all of these ways in which power and decisions are being made, we need to understand as black voters, as all voters, actually. And so, you know, at the end of the day, join us at the powercoalition.org. Check us out. And we're also, you know, on Facebook and social media as Power Coalition, Power Co EJ. So, yeah. So look us up. I love it. And thank- Ashley, we, we're so grateful for you. Thank you so much. We'll be following that case. We're going to keep an eye on Alabama. We're just going to be watching the courts with a whole lot more interest right now. I'm here for it all. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 